Good morning. I was privileged to go to Cape Town in South Africa on a student mission trip just a few months after the first multiracial uh, elections in South Africa in which Nelson Mandela had been elected president. The oppressive and demonic apartheid regime was slowly being dismantled, but the inequalities I saw there were almost incomprehensible. By day, we were serving in townships made up of thousands of tin shacks. And at night, we were staying in a white suburb behind security gates. In fact, the Africana family that we were staying with had a black maid, as was common in those days. She would travel in from the townships each day. The white uh, wife and daughter in this Africana household were um, with love and respect. But the dad was the most racist man I have ever encountered. He saw black Africans as objects, not as people. I was grateful to be staying in his house, but I found him absolutely repulsive. I fear that many white people in this country think that racism isn't a problem. We look at it then, or we look at the states now, and we say, well, we haven't got racism like that, so we're okay. Friends, if you think that, let me tell you that we're not okay. It's terrible that 20% of white families live in poverty in this country. It's despicable that nearly 50% of black families do. Since I gave the first message in this series, I've been privileged to listen to lots more stories like Josh's from people in our church community. But I have grieved as I have listened to those stories. One person said, I was verbally abused every day in sixth form by a boy I'd never spoken to simply because he didn't like my skin colour. Another told me that every time they go shopping, they prepare themselves for abuse and that even whilst driving, they have fear. Someone else said, I have racism at work almost every week, yet my managers don't take my complaints seriously. Still another said, I changed job every three or four years due to bullying and harassment. Going to the union didn't help. Someone from the nursing council advised me that if I'm not comfortable, I should look for another job because most of the people struck from the nursing register are from BAME backgrounds. How can I not weep when I hear my sisters and brothers experiencing such injustice? And how can I not be humbled when I hear them say, we preach, we pray each and every day before leaving the house that God's hand would be upon us to protect us from all sorts of abuses. We look to the cross and we forgive those who abuse us. Racism is very real in this country too. I remember one of the few meal times I shared with that horrendously racist man in Cape Town. He asked me about a bracelet I was wearing on my arm with five coloured beads. I was delighted he'd asked because it, I'd been given the bracelet a few months earlier at an evangelism training session and it was designed to help me tell the gospel to people. And boy, did this man need the gospel and God's power to transform his heart. And so I enthusiastically started explaining the different colours. First, green to represent the Garden of Eden, the perfect world that God has created for us to enjoy. Then black to represent all the evil and sin, all that has gone wrong with our world. Let me stop you there, this man said. 
in his clipped South African accent, which I'm not going to try uh, impersonating. And then he said, why do you think you've chosen the colour black to represent all that's gone wrong in our worlds? I was mortified. And I saw the implication of this simple gospel bracelet. I didn't get a chance to explain the rest of the gospel through the other three colours. But I had just learned my first lesson about how the church is sometimes part of the problem of racism rather than part of the solution. Our church community includes about 11% of people from BAME backgrounds. And yet that is a smaller representation of BAME people than Shirley had at the last census 10 years ago. In other words, if we want to reflect the ethnic diversity of our area, we are over a decade behind. Across Southampton, well over 30% of children at school are from BAME backgrounds. In our church, it's less than half of that. And so by my opinion, at the moment, our church is part of the problem, not part of the solution. We should be at the forefront of demonstrating what it looks like for people from many different backgrounds to love and learn from each other as equals. Tragically, we're not. And so this morning, I want to tease out three ways that the church is part of the problem. And the first reason is that each of us individually commit the sin of racism. Now, I'm not accusing you of being intentionally racist. But at the very least, each of us has an unconscious bias towards people like us and against people like them, whatever us and them means for you. We've been looking at the book of Romans recently, which is clear that sin infects us to the very core of our being. And however much we might like to think that we're nice people, how many good deeds we do, how many friends we have or people from other cultures, sin infects us to the core of our being and makes us susceptible to racism. Let me give you a biblical example of how that panned out. The Apostle Peter. It's hard to exaggerate uh, how wide the gulf between Jew and Gentile was in those days, how deeply entrenched that racial divide was. And yet after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus told Peter and the other apostles to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to every nation. Peter was obviously uh, a bit reluctant to do that. Like all Jews, he thought that Jesus was just for his own people, the Jews. And so Jesus gives Peter this vision. We watched it earlier in the children's Bible story, which made it clear to Peter that it really was OK for him to go into the homes of Gentiles. And so within a day, he's in the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, telling him about Jesus. And wonderfully, Cornelius and all his family and friends are converted to Jesus. And Peter says, I now realise how true it is that God accepts people, sorry, that God does not but accepts every nation, those who fear him. So here's Peter. He's been a bit slow on the uptake, but part of his racism, which had built up through decades of racial pride, uh, that his people were the best, part of that racism was now being stripped away. So far, so good. Now, fast forward 10 years or so. 
Uh, this time the scene is Antioch, and there's been a showdown between the apostles Peter and Paul. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 2. He said, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So here's what's going on. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, a sign that he was overcoming his racial prejudice. But then when a new group of influential Jews uh, came along, Peter's racism began to seep out again. He drew back from the Gentiles and wouldn't eat with them anymore. Peter loved Jesus. He'd led thousands of people to faith in Christ. Yet he was still capable of racism. And that is true for me. And it is true for each of us. The sin of racial pride infects each of us so deeply that we are capable of racist attitudes and actions and words. In fact, Peter didn't actually say anything wrong, but it was his inaction which spoke volumes. By beginning to distance himself from Gentile believers, he was sending a clear message. He was saying, I don't really see you as my brother or sister anymore. After the first talk in this series, I, uh, one member of our welcome team said this to me about something she'd observed when we were able to have you know, services in the building pre-pandemic with, with loads of people. She said, I've noticed that some members of our congregation behave rather distantly towards people of colour, probably because they're afraid of offending, as we don't understand different cultures unless we have travelled widely. Now, I think there's a bit of a parallel going on there with what Peter was doing, a subtle backing off from people who aren't like us. And I find it interesting that both Peter and some members of our congregation back off through fear. Peter was afraid of the influential Jewish people. He was afraid of being seen as too friendly with the Gentiles. Maybe some of us are afraid of offending people from different cultures. Fear can stop us doing what is right. Fear can stop us speaking out about racism at, church, at work. Fear of being misunderstood can make us reluctant to speak to our neighbour. Fear of, can make us reluctant to give or accept a, a, an invitation to share food at someone's house. I remember being uh, nervous about going round to a, a Muslim neighbour's house in Manchester when we lived there. And yet I'm so pleased I overcame that fear because the food was delicious. Friends, all of us are capable of racism, sometimes very subtly. And remember that our inaction often speaks just as loudly as any racist words do. Here's the second way I think that the church is part of the problem. It's that we are institutionally racist. You see, what happens to any organisation which is made up of sinful people is that it lands up with sinful structures. 
it lands up being institutionally racist. And because the church is made up of people who are capable of racism, the church unwittingly lands up being institutionally racist too. And sadly, this is nothing new. That reading we had from Acts 6 tells us about a time when the fledgling church was only a few months old, and yet it was already guilty of institutional racism. And that was even before they had Gentile believers in the mix as well. This time it was the Hebraic Jews who were overlooking the Greek Jews when they were handing out food parcels. You see, the first leaders of the church were all Hebraic Jews, and unwittingly they had a bias towards people like them meaning that other people were overlooked. It's not nice being overlooked, is it? Some of our church family from BAME backgrounds have told me how they're overlooked for promotion at work. That's terrible. Yet too often the church has overlooked people because of their ethnic backgrounds failed to appreciate the, the richness of the gifts and skills and experiences they bring as a unique bearer of the image of God. And everyone loses out when we do that. Tracy mentioned in her prayers earlier on that the Archbishop of Canterbury has said, I'm ashamed of our history and I'm ashamed of our failure. There is no doubt when we look at our own Church of England that we are still deeply institutionally racist. Last year, Church of England set up an anti-racism task force, and they recently gave this update. They said, in seeking to address the sin of racism in our church, we do so seeking to follow a biblical imperative which we share with all followers of Christ. Our work is not a battle in a culture war, but rather a call to arms against the evil and pernicious sin of racism. Our mandate flows not from identity politics, but from our identity in Christ. So far, so good. Then they say how they've reviewed 20 official reports accepted by the Church of England over the last 35 years, which between them have made over 160 recommendations relating to racial justice. And yet many of those recommendations, despite being adopted and approved by the church councils, have not been acted upon or follow through. And so the task force update finishes by saying, the time for talking and lament has now given way for a time for action. As a task force, we are united in our view that any failure by the church to act both intentionally and urgently will lead to an existential crisis brought about by over 30 years of well-intentioned talk accompanied by decades of inaction. I'm sorry and ashamed to say that I'm complicit in that. I've been ordained 21 years. But by not being more proactive in seeking real change, I've been part of letting institutional racism go unchecked. At St James's by the Park, we might not appear to be racist to most people, but I don't think we should dismiss the charge that easily. I've been vicar here for over 450 Sundays. But I can only think of four or five Sundays when we've had a preacher who's from a BAME background. We have a lot to do to play our part in combating institutional racism. 
And did you hear from Acts 6 how that fledgling church responded to the challenge of institutional racism? They appointed seven people, all men, they still needed to work on their gender diversity, uh, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we can't be absolutely sure, but it seems as though all seven of those men were from the discriminated against minority. So they didn't say, OK, let's make sure we get some proportional representation in the church. They didn't even say, well, let's go for a 50-50 balance. They said, let's give this whole ministry area over to this overlooked group. Let's release them in their leadership and their organisational skills. Let's trust them to be more just in this ministry than we have been. Let's pray that God would give us similar courage and boldness in tackling institutional racism. And what was the result of the outcome of that bold step in Acts 6? Well, the church grew rapidly. And God loves it when his church combats institutional racism. And unbelievers sit up and take notice. They're drawn towards this unique community which loves each other across racial, racial and cultural divides. Lord, may the same happen here. Now, before I come to the final reason why the church is part of the problem, let me tell you about some terrifying research from the United States, which I fear would be repeated here if it was done here. And it's about the different perceptions that people have about what causes racial inequalities. So people were given a range of opinions as to why black people on average have worse jobs and worse income and worse housing than white people. And in the survey, most white people chose options which, in effect, blamed the black individuals. They hadn't got enough self-motivation and so on. But most black people chose options which highlighted structural factors such as lack of educational opportunity or workplace discrimination. And so, so far, that research shows that white people are blind to the systemic racism in our societies, but black people can see it all too clearly because they experience it all too painfully. But here's the thing which really made me feel sick. Amongst Bible-believing Christians, the difference of opinion between black and white was far larger. In other words, white Christians were even more likely to blame black people for having lower economic outcomes than white non-Christians were to blame the black people. To put it differently, there is something about the theology in predominantly white Bible-believing churches that makes white Bible-believing Christians even more blind to the systemic racism than their white neighbours are. I find that utterly horrifying. Here's what I think the problem is. That too often our theology of sin is inadequate. You see, most white-led Protestant churches take most of our theological cues from the Reformation. We place a great emphasis on personal sin, how we're each responsible for our own actions and accountable to God for them. 
our highly individualized Western culture feeds into that. You know, we can only be responsible for things that we have done, surely we say. But we tend to overlook the biblical material, which talks about corporate responsibility for sin. So Daniel repented for the sin of his ancestors. In other places in the Bible, the whole family is held responsible for an individual's sinful action, because in reality, the character and actions of an individual are in large part forged by the community and family they grow up in. In other words, the Bible says there is such a thing as corporate sin, collective guilt. And that doesn't just happen at the, the family or community level. It can happen at society level. And systemic racism is one example of that structural systemic sin. And it's because our white Protestant theology of sin tends to focus so strongly on individual responsibility that white Christians tend to ignore the structural factors in racial inequality and overstate the responsibility of the individual black person in their life outcomes. I think if we had a more biblical understanding of sin, one which includes corporate guilt, structural sin, then churches like ours would be more willing to recognise what is already blatantly obvious to every black person, that systemic racism is rife in our society. And the more we're willing to recognise that, the more we will do about it. So having right theology is important, desperately important, because having an inadequate theology is blinding us to injustice in our world. It's making us part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Now, that's all been quite heavy, hasn't it? Uh, you'll be pleased to know that next time when I talk on this, I'm going to talk about how the church can be part of the solution. But we can't be part of the solution until we've acknowledged that we're part of the problem. And that's why I focused on that this time. But the only feasible response, the only appropriate response from this sort of message actually is repentance. To admit our failings to the Lord and to each other and to ask his help in overcoming them. So that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to suggest that in the quietness, think back first to Peter. It was his subtle inaction that turned out to reinforce racism. And so just in the quietness, ask the question, are there any inactions that the Lord wants to convict you of? You know, in the Old Testament, King David prayed, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. So let's pray that God's spirit shows us our hidden faults. And think of our church as a whole. What might be some of the ways in which we're unwittingly institutionally racist?
Lord God, my heart bleeds and grieves at the injustice that some of my sisters and brothers endure on a daily or weekly basis. Would you continue to open my eyes to see the reality of racism and how it pans out in our society now? Help me to check my blind spots. And Lord, I repent of standing by too often and doing nothing and so contributing towards this institutional racism in the Church of England. And now I'm going to invite all of us to join in with the words of a confession to help us, each of us, to acknowledge the part that we have played in this. So we pray together. God of mercy, we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We turn from the wrong that we have thought and said and done and are mindful of all that we have failed to do. For the sake of Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us for all that is past and help us to live each day in the light of Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, as we go on uh, reflecting on this and letting God's spirit work in our hearts and, and shine his light on where we each need to change. And as we go on inviting God's spirit to transform us, uh, we're going to listen to some worship music from a church in the Philippines. I, I love their multi-ethnic approach to worship. And then we're going to join in together singing In Christ Alone with lots of people from different languages uh, in an Indian church. And videos like these uh, give me a vision for what we could be like in Shirley. And they point forward, they help me look forward to the great day when people from every tribe and language and nation will worship Christ together. So let's, let's join in with this worship. 